You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff. I'm here with Max Linsky. Aaron Lammer, MIA in 2019. Will he ever show up? Tune in next week to find out. We'll find out. 2019. Will it be the year that Aaron Lammer doesn't show up? <laughs> Has Aaron quit the podcast? No, he's not. Aaron will be back next week. Uh, for this week, I interviewed a repeat guest, Max. Three-timer. Welcome to the three-timer club Malcolm Gladwell. Yes, very rare that uh, we have someone on that many times. But uh, Malcolm, last time I talked to him, he was starting a podcast called Revisionist History. That's now three seasons in, and I wanted to talk to him about a bunch of episodes of that. He also has a new podcast called Broken Record, which is entirely about music, uh, which he's doing with the producer Rick Rubin and also Bruce Headlam, who's a journalist and very close friend of Malcolm's who uh, used to work at the New York Times. And uh, I should note for this conversation that we were only a couple few episodes into Broken Record when we talked. Uh, so there's some new ones out, like uh, there's one with Roseanne Cash that's really good uh, that are not discussed in the podcast. But pretty much uh, whenever Malcolm Gladwell wants to uh, invite me or allow me to come to his house and, and uh, interview him, I'll do it. So uh, it's exciting to have him back for a third time. Yeah, I like how you like uh, tried to pretend there was a hook here. <laughs> the answer is that uh, anytime Malcolm Gladwell sends Evan an email and says, "Come over to my house, let's talk about uh, writing," you're just going to do that. That's that's the uh, that's the ethos of the long form podcast. I, I, I sent him the email. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you want to send someone an email, I'll tell you how to do it. Mailchimp. Mm. Back with the long form podcast for 2019. It is a uh, pleasure to welcome them into our house yet again. Uh, their support is what makes this podcast possible and also what makes so many email newsletters possible. Millions upon millions. They have the uh, simply the best email newsletter game in the world. Thank you, MailChimp. Here is Evan with Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So... We've talked twice, and uh, the first time you had just finished David and Goliath, or it was just about to come out. The second time you were just starting a new show, Revisionist History, and now you've got a whole podcast company. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to come back was to sort mm -hmm. of, first of all, explore what that is and why you decided to go that way, and then also 
catch up on some where Revisionist history has gone since those first, it was really one of the first few episodes that we talked about last time. So, um, and Broken Record. Oh, and Broken Record, of course. You have yes. an entirely new podcast, which My new music is podcast. being launched yes. by that company. So, well, let's start there because I was listening to our, our previous interviews and there's a reference in there where you say something like, well, my best friend, Bruce Hedlum, who works in the New York Times, such and such, I can't remember what it was about, but he is part of Broken Record. And I sort of wanted to start with that friendship. And when did you guys become friends? And I, we met on the first day of first grade, or as we say in Canada, grade one, <laughs> in a little town, an hour and a half west of Toronto, really little town. And I have, he's been my best friend ever since. We went to the same college. We moved to America, not at the same time, but roughly the same time. And he, for many years, he just lived down the street. Now he's moved to Brooklyn, which is the furthest he has been away from me since we met. That's incredible. In the late 60s. <laughs> so he has outrageously put him... Well, no, there was a brief period where he lived in Toronto, I lived here. But you know, when we were growing up, he lived less than a mile away. And now he's on the other side of Prospect Park. So I feel abandoned. You're, that's, you're like siblings. Like yeah. I know a set of twins that sort of like has never lived that yeah. far apart. Yeah. Well, was his and your sort of entry into journalism connected in any way? Did you encourage each other to do it or was it completely independent? I think it was in, we used to do a, uh, Bruce and I and our friend Terry, who's now a Soviet studies specialist at Harvard, we all grew up together in this little tiny town, and we had a zine. Remember zines? Mm-hmm. We had a zine in high school called Ad Hominem. And so we did journalism of a sort. And then when Bruce and I went to college together, Terry went elsewhere, but we went to University of Toronto together, and we used to write for a college news. Our college newspaper was such a joke. It came out like twice a year, <laughs> but, um, or three times a year. And we, Bruce and I, invented a character. Nobody would go to the sports, to the football games for our college. Our college was tiny, like a thousand students. Half the people on the football team didn't actually, weren't actually enrolled at our college. It was that kind of thing. And so we decided since someone went, we would write a sports column for the paper. And we invented a coach whose name we called Wexford Harding. And we claimed he was from Alabama. And he was a kind of a hard-drinking, down-on-his-heels guy who had ended up in Toronto and we would write these write-ups of the game. And we started out by quoting Wexford Harding. And then we decided, Bruce, that was me, Bruce started to write a regular column, was by Wexford Harding, in which Wexford Harding would kind of talk about the game, but then talk about his own troubled life and growing up in the South. And, and they were actually, I have to say, they're totally brilliant. But it was so, it was 100% made up. And they were hilarious. And Wexford emerged as this kind of like complicated, you know, deeply sympathetic, but, you know, hugely misogynistic Southern football coach who, by some like, you know, t- totally ridiculous um, turn of events, had ended up in Toronto coaching some absurd intramural hockey, uh, football team. So um, so we did do journalism of a sort. And we also <laughs> did other ridiculous things for this uh, college newspaper. Well, I have to ask, was the was whatever limited readership existed for the newspaper, did, did, would it feel like they were in on the understanding totally that this was fake? Or they, they we wouldn't were, have known? We were hugely uninterested back then in the response to our 
which is I don't, I don't remember ever caring one whit whether people or other people were in on the joke, what the response was. It was purely for our own amusement. I mean, there was no other. <laughs> it's quite possible I am the only person next to Bruce who remembers who Wexford Harding is. I don't think it made any impact whatsoever. <laughs> I, I think there's a story that's not that dissimilar to this, a real story of a college football coach not that long ago who got sort of kicked out of his college football team for being an abusive towards his players, who was then hired by a Canadian team, and then later they found out. I had some sort of vague yeah, no, no, understanding. So this is now this a trope. <laughs> Wait, Wexford Harding kind of is now a real-life version of Wexford Harding. It could be a movie. Um, so you guys, was music something that was central or important to your friendship? Is there a reason why? Yeah, so Bruce's family is incredibly musical. In fact, one of his brothers is a conductor, and one another of his brothers is a music theorist at... Uh, the music school in Rochester, Eastman. Mm. So he comes from a, Bruce is very musical. And as a kid, I would go to Bruce's, we didn't have a record player. Did we have a record player? We didn't have a TV. Well, we had a record player, but no records. That's right. <laughs> we didn't have a television. And Bruce's house had both a television, a record player, and records. So I would go to Bruce's house to listen to music as a kid, as like a seven-year-old. And then... Then we used to make mixtapes for each other for years and years and years. Um, in fact, every birthday, I would get a mixtape from Bruce, which were these fantastic, and I would make them for him as well. So a lot of my musical, he was always the person who discovered music for me. So I, a huge amount of my musical tastes are just Bruce's musical tastes. So yeah, that was a kind of shared point of, of interest growing up. How would you describe your musical tastes? Bruce's? No, you're not. Oh. <laughs> no. Um, well, they're, they're eclectic. As a kid, uh, my brother and I used to listen to, the first radio station we listened to was a country station. But none of our peers listened to country, so we felt awkward about it. And then we started listening to, in high school, you could get from Toronto this weak signal of a kind of indie radio station that played exclusively British New Wave. Mm. So no, what's weird is we grew up without, I knew American country music and I knew British New Wave music. I knew nothing about American pop music of any kind. And, you know, the culture of Canada is, um, musical culture of Canada is profoundly English. It's one of the big differences, particularly when I was growing up, one of the big differences between Canada and America is that our uh, culturally, we were still very much oriented towards uh, England, not America. This is the so, non-French part of yeah. Canada. So, yeah. So that's my kind of weird musical trajectory. And, and since then, do you feel like you've, you like to discover new music, or you're a person who you have music that you've loved that you kind of go back to more often? Than I have a very do? serendipitous, people will sh tell me to listen to stuff and I'll listen to it. I just sort of like all music if it's explained to me which is sort of what I wanted to do this podcast. Mm. You know, it's funny when I, it's, I have the same relationship to music that I have to art, which is when I go to an art museum, I spend more time reading the little plaque or the description next to the art than I do looking at the art. Mm -hmm. I sort of glance at the art and then I, <laughs> I read the long description. Or, you know, if you get the headphones, sometimes I even stop. I don't even, I no longer even connect the, what I'm hearing to the, piece of art in a while, I just listen. And with music, I'm much more 
I remember listening, reading a, a Willie Nelson autobiography that came out a couple years ago. Uh-huh. And I realized I, I love Willie Nelson's music, but I like his autobiography better. Have you um, read the Greg Allman one? No, I haven't. Highly recommended. I really. I just, I, the stories behind, when this was one of the impetuses for Broken Record was when I hear the story behind the music and then I hear the music, then the music is really profoundly meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. But without the story, just it's just the way my mind works. I have no kind of, it's just hard for me to relate to it as, because I'm not musical. So I wanted to get musicians to explain things to me. And I realized lots of other people feel the same way. And Bruce is a, uh, knows tons about music and is really, really good at kind of drawing people out on music. And so he seemed like a natural person to, and we've been talking about this. And then, of course, you know, Rick Rubin. The third, the third character in this is Rick Rubin. So is he going to appear more oh, yeah. often? Rick, well, Rick, you know, he had, has had this tumultuous fall. With the fire. With the fire. Yeah. And then there were other things going on in the summer. So he, uh, he's got a bunch of stuff that's, this is going to become very, very Rick Rubin-y the show, Broken Record, in the new year. Um, he's a bunch of stuff that's just just hasn't dropped yet. So you mentioned in one of the sh- early shows, you say something like, I knew Rick Rubin, but I'd never met him in person or something. So mm-hmm. h- how did it come about that you knew him at all? Well, I met him years ago, but I have a very bad memory, and I forget where. And then we have a mutual friend who said, oh, you know, Rick really wants to... Rick's thinking of doing something interesting with music or something. You should talk to him. And that was, I had been talking with Bruce about doing something, a kind of music show. And so it just all sort of, and then I would go out to LA and just hang out with Rick at Shangri-La and we would talk about music. And so I just sort of got to know him. And he's the loveliest, he's incredibly like, it's hard to describe him. He's just the most sort of gracious, calm, thoughtful, insanely insightful person he you know he reminds this is, i don't know whether rick will be offended by this or not he reminds me of my mother <laughs> my mom is some woman who has a very she's a extremely strong woman and a very very like powerfully intelligent woman but she doesn't say a lot and when she speaks she speaks really softly so and she's tiny so you have to like lean in i mean you have to sort of like you know, she's like well under five feet. You have to kind of like project yourself forward, move your ear because she's only going to murmur and she's only going to say three things per hour and you got to catch the three things or you're out of luck, right? And Rick is like, you've got to like, you have to listen to Rick. You can't, he's not going to come in and take over the room. And so this this is sort of, the podcast is a perfect form because, you know, you put the microphone in front of him <laughs> and it's it's also what's really fun is watching a couple times now I've been in the room when they're we're talking to a famous musician. There's a couple of shows we haven't aired yet. And Rick is in the room, and they change around him because they have such respect for him. They've worked with him. And there you see a different... It's weird. It's like you see a different version of this. You're with this rock and roll celebrity, and, you, and they're used to being the one who's like, you know, everyone bows down before them. And then Rick's there, and all of a sudden you're like, you see, you're sort of trying, you, you've created this really fascinating social triangle where they don't feel like they're the most important person in the room anymore. They're like, Rick's there. Um, and that's a beautiful dynamic to watch 
to observe. You know, I, I just end up kind of being a fly on the wall. Hey, I'm going to pause things here to just say that support for today's show comes from Aspen Ideas to Go, which is a weekly podcast about big ideas that will open your mind, featuring fascinating talks and conversations with the world's top thinkers and doers from the Aspen Institute. It gives you a front row seat to the annual Aspen Ideas Festival, which brings more than 400 thought leaders to Aspen to talk about everything from politics, economics, and world affairs to arts, culture, and science. There is a lot to be curious about here. You could hear Madeleine Albright talking about fascism, uh, Adam Grant talking about uh, how to make your work life more meaningful. You can subscribe to Aspen Ideas to go now and get the best of Aspen Ideas every week. So uh, just get out whatever podcast app you're in right now and search for Aspen Ideas to go or go to aspenideas.org slash podcast. Thank you and feed your curiosity with Aspen Ideas to go. Here is Evan back with Malcolm Gladwell. Do you feel you mentioned you've got upcoming episodes that have sort of big, big stars? And, you know, I think people that are very famous have made appearances in various ways in your work, but you've not been a person who's, you know, mm -hmm. written about yeah. celebrity or sort of gravitated yeah. towards that over the years. Has that felt different to you trying to conduct those interviews? I mean, obviously, wrangling them is one thing, but yeah. conducting those interviews or being in the rooms with those people, the guardedness or the difference in sort of trying to get that story out of them is the same or different? Uh, well, first of all, like I, you know, I am forever a 13 year old. So nobody loves celebrity more than me. I mean, <laughs> I, I think it's fantastic. I, you know, I, I have a totally uncomplicated relationship with this. I'm like, well, that's just, you know, I don't go up to celebrities if I see them somewhere, but I like, you know, if I was walking down the street and I saw, I don't know, Bob Dylan walking towards me, I'd be like, whoa, you know, I, that would make my day. And I would immediately text everyone I know and say, I saw Bob Dylan. Yeah. Um, or anyone, you know. Um, so that's, I get super excited. But um, does it change? Well, it's, you know, they, someone who has been in the public spotlight for a long time, it's just a little harder. They've just, you know, the most loveliest thing in the world is to interview someone who's never been interviewed before, mm -hmm. to sort of watch them. So it's a totally novel experience particularly when you're interviewing them about things that they never thought might, they might not have thought were worthy of an interview. That's a really lovely experience to kind of, it's like watching a, you know, anyone kind of go through something for the first time, a kid on a roller coaster for the first, or whatever the version is. But a celebrity is a very different kind of experience because the bar for them is really quite high. They've been interviewed a million times. So you have to be kind of on your game and you have to, take them somewhere that's a little unfamiliar because that's maybe that's what will get them to perk up. Otherwise, it's just another of a long line of interviews. So it's a lot more demanding. Mm -hmm. um, and also, a lot of times, they don't need the interview. I don't mean that in a nasty way, but there's just... We, I was mentioning Bob Dylan before. Bob Dylan doesn't need to talk to me. Like, there's nothing... It doesn't make his life better in any way, right? He still sells lots of records. You know, he's... So... That's a complication. And sometimes 
with these shows, you want to have a kind of good mix where you mix in some people who who maybe are not as well-known, but for whom doing an interview is a kind of, not a useful exercise, but a kind of novel and engaging exercise. They can sometimes be unexpectedly delightful. Well, we were talking about this episode before we started in where you go to Nashville and you're talking to these songwriters, one of whom has been on Revisionist History before. Actually, I want to talk about that Bobby episode Braddock, as well. Yeah. yeah, Bobby Braddock. But how do you, I'm interested in how you kind of think about what the show is going to become and how you construct it. So that's a, that's a complicated situation. You go in, you've got three people, they're mm-hmm. going to be playing music sometimes. And how much of that do you feel like is just feel you're sort of, okay, we're going to go and set up some mics and we're just going to talk and then we'll edit it down versus you started with a plan that was, okay, this is what we want an episode to look like. Yeah. Sound like. Well, I asked them beforehand to come in with lists of songs that have been very meaningful to them, either their own or other people's. So that was my only kind of priming. But really what I wanted was they knew each other. They know each other. They're part of that little Nashville fraternity. And I just wanted, the thing I wanted and I thought what would be beautiful was to capture their camaraderie. And it sort of comes through in that episode in beautiful ways that they're completely uncompetitive with each other. And what I couldn't capture, and this is the one downside of a podcast is, Whenever one of them was singing or talking about something, the other two were looking on like fans. They were like so delighted to be with each other and to sort of talking about, you know, when, you know, Bobby was singing one of his songs or the other two were like, they were, first of all, they were, they would come in on the chorus. That's what I was going to say. It was so lovely. That captured it because they would harmonize. Yeah, they would harmonize without even, that wasn't set up. They were just like joining in. Because they were delighted by the and looking at each, they just they just had so much fun, and that's that's all I wanted. I wanted that sense of the idea of people doing creative people getting such elemental joy out of doing their work. That's really what I want to capture in. Um, we want to capture in Broken Record. There will never be a Broken Record in which we that we do with someone who we don't like or that we are critical of. There are there's a place for criticism, but this is not. This is a show about us hanging with people whose music we love and capturing what is beautiful about that kind of mutual affection. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the truth is, like the amount of good music out there is so much greater than the amount of bad music. I mean, it's there's it's a ten to one. Um, I I feel differently about the art world, by the way, but like the music world, there's like. There is an insane amount of good music. I, I know a tiny, tiny fraction of the music that I know I would like. And that, to me, is, it's bananas. I mean, like, you know, so that's why I feel like it's an urgency to kind of discover more of it. And how much sort of surveying of the landscape did you do, or I guess did you do before starting the podcast in terms of, this is where we want to sort of fit in, there's other music podcasts, there's like the very technical, you know, song exploder kind of thing, yeah. and then there's... Uh, don't listen to a lot of other music podcasts other than that one, but I'm sure there are there are yeah. a variety of sort of criticism or things we like or what have you. Did you say like there's a thing that doesn't exist that we want to exist, or is it closer to we have the opportunity to do this and this would be really fun and interesting? Yeah, I, I didn't do any. <clears throat> I did no market. None of us did any kind of market research on this. Look, it's a. I think there's a place for all for all of these shows. Basically, I think the podcasting world is putting radio out of business and. 
So there's a way more room for growth here. There's many more ears we can reach. I don't feel I'm in competition with any of those. I think that those are all shows that lift all of us. I mean, this idea of creating a medium that talks about music in a more intelligent way as opposed to top 10 songs and seven ads and then two more top 10 songs and seven ads. That's I, th- I think of us, all of these music podcasts as being allied with each other mm. against this kind of, un- not unthinking, but like, we're, I think we're taking music seriously. And that's that we would, I think the best way to consume music is to take it seriously and to talk about it as well as listen to it. And li- when you listen to it with an educated ear, the experience is just so much greater. You know, now that I know, after doing that episode with those three Nashville songwriters, I'll never listen to The Gambler the same way again. Right? It's like now I know, oh, yeah. that's a really important song in the history of Nashville. Oh, it was a big deal the way they delay the payoff in that song. Or, you know, oh, it's interesting the way that the songwriter envisioned that song and the way we popularly hear it are quite different. You know, on and on and on. All those facts deepen and enrich and enliven my appreciation of the music. And that's what I think all of these shows are doing. So this is all being created under the auspices of Pushkin. Mm -hmm. Um, And so first, I mean, you have another old friend there. There was another reference in our previous podcast that you you talked about Jacob Weisberg being your roommate, I think, in D.C. or something. So how did you guys become friends? And I'm interested in why a company. Yeah. Would Jacob uh, answer, answer an ad? We had a group house in D.C. in the late 80s, me and a bunch of Canadian friends who were at grad school in D.C., and we had a free room, which we were renting out for, I want to say, $300 a month. It had no exterior window. and I was about to say that sounds cheap, <laughs> and now it actually sounds a little expensive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Jacob... Shows up. He's on a gap year from college doing an internship in D.C. And so I met him in 1986, something like that. And I've been friends with him ever since. And I sort of credit Jacob was the one. He was working for the New Republic as an intern. I was working for some right-wing think tank. I had no. And he was the one who really got me into the world of journalism. I started writing for the New Republic because of him. And because of that job, I got my job at the Washington Post because of that, you know. So I got really, Jacob really was the one who got me started. And uh, virtually everyone I know in America, I know because of Jacob <laughs> some way. Um, yeah, Jacob, uh, you know, of course, went on to run Slate and run the Slate group. And then Panoply, their podcast arm, and then Panoply decided to get out of the content business. And Jacob thought this is an opportunity for him to start a new venture. So he came to me in the summer and said, do you want to start a podcasting company? And I was like, sure. So, so what's your, do you have a title? Are you are you now working at a, consider yourself working at a company or are you just sort of making your podcast yeah, and I the mean, company part's not you? I mean, it's, I mean, I do I have, I guess I have a title. I mean, Jacob is the CEO. I He actually does the heavy lifting. I kind of gad about in coffee shops, but, um, but uh uh, you know, I, I'm on email chains. Is it, does that matter? I go to meetings sometimes. Do you do like interview people for jobs? <laughs> you know, I, I'm so terrible at that. I, I let others. I, although I, I, am, I am responsible. We hired a, a really good marketing person who I knew from my, who, was, who worked for my publisher. So that was my idea. 
I think. Or maybe, no, 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 no. She, she looked me up and said, I'd love to work with you guys. So it's not <laughs> nothing to do with me. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just along for the ride. I'm, you know, in an hour, I'm supposed to show up somewhere to meet with some group. And I'll do that. And I'll, <laughs> we had lunch yesterday with someone we were wooing, you know. So, and I came along. And so I very much, I'm, I'm under the control of, I'm a wholly owned subsidiary of Jacob Weisberg, <laughs> Inc. <laughs> so there w- but there will be, this is a dumb question because I feel like I know the answer, but there will be podcasts that do not include you. Oh, yes. By Michael Lewis. Yeah, we're right, launching right. a Michael Lewis podcast um, in March, and we have a bunch of other ones in the hopper. I have nothing to do. I mean, I go to some of the table reads and stuff, but I give advice. But uh, no, it just so happens that Broken Record was one that was in the works already, and that's one that I'm involved with. But um, oh, no, no, this is much, much bigger than yeah. me. So do you, do you miss writing magazine articles? Well, I just wrote one Is for it The out? New Yorker. It hasn't come out yet. Oh. Um, I guess. I mean, I've been, I've been working on a book. So I have a book that's coming out. It's pretty much done. So I've been doing a lot of writing. Um, do I miss magazine writings, writing articles in particular? A little bit. And I'll go back to doing them. I've just been distracted because I've been finishing this book when I wasn't doing my podcast. So I divided my year in half. Half book writing, half pod, half revisionist history, and so I haven't had any time to do anything else. But now the book is finished, or nearly finished. I think I probably will go back and write New York articles again. What can you tell me about the book? Is the book? Uh... It's, it's a. It's called Talking to Strangers, and uh, it's a book that is organized around the death of Sandra Bland, the woman in Texas who was pulled over in 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ends up dead in her cell. Mm-hmm. And it's really a kind of book-length examination of what went wrong in that case. Although, I mean, there's a lot of digression. The digression is me talking about seven or eight other cases that I feel are similar. Not police shooting cases, but wildly different cases that all center around this problem of how to talk to a stranger hmm. and how we don't know how to do it. So that's the book that uh, yeah, is just finishing up now. And I would assume there's intersections with blink yeah although not really Hmm. i mean i talk about blink briefly but blink was about this is about something more specific which is i'm interested in the kind of the problems caused by unfamiliarity like specifically what does it mean when i approach you and i don't know anything about you and that first encounter where we try and figure out things so and the idea of the book is that there are incredible number of problems, problematic cases, moments, situations in society are about that specific thing, unfamiliarity problems, and that we're not well equipped in, to deal with these unfamiliarity problems. Well, I won't, I won't go too deep on it because we want to save that, but perhaps when it comes out, we can talk about it. I did want to talk about some revisionist history episodes mm-hmm. yeah. from, particularly from the last season. I mean, I feel like I've listened to the whole thing. I feel like to me, it really hit a different stride in this third season mm-hmm. the episodes felt a little different to me i'm not sure i could articulate exactly but i want to talk about this parapraxis one maybe even as an example of sort of how you put one of these episodes together yeah um because i think a lot of people were obsessed with that episode mm-hmm. and so first of all where does it start I, I hesitate to give away what happens in it so why don't we say people should go listen to this it's like i think it's episode 10 yeah maybe the last episode of the third season it's called uh elvis analysis Practice, so I forgot. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's episode 10, season three. Yeah, so people should listen to it so then we don't have to worry about spoiling it. Mm-hmm. But how did you 
did you approach it from the phenomenon first or from knowing about this Elvis? No, I, so here's how it happened. For my book, I was reading a book by, about the Stanley Milgram experiments written by a woman named, I think her name is Anne Perry. Hmm. Really good book, fascinating book. And she interviews a former Milgram grad student, the grad student who worked with Milgram on the famous Milgram experiments. And she mentions, parenthetically, that this guy would go on to be write a lot of psychohistory, including an article about Elvis. So I think, well, what's the article? The article about Elvis. So I go and I find the article about Elvis, which runs in the Journal of Psychobiography and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like super interesting. It's all about how Elvis has difficulties with the song, Are You Lonesome Tonight? He can't remember the lyrics. And sort of, and to a Freudian, that is enormously interesting, right? So I think, oh, I'll just do a straightforward piece about, I'll go and I'll find the guy who's still alive who wrote the article, and I'll talk about that. So that's the genesis of it. Mm. The problem was that the, the guy who wrote the article, who's a lovely guy and written so many brilliant stuff, is very old and not well, and it wasn't a useful interview. And, mm-hmm. and so I wasn't going to do it, and I kind of gave up. And then I sort of, I was desperate. So I said, well, maybe what I should do is just find someone to play me the song. And maybe that would be fun. So then I called my agent. We were just chatting about something. And I was like, you don't happen to know anyone who would play me the song. He goes, I could ask Jack White. I was like, Jesus. <laughs> Are you serious? I was thinking like some random dude, you know, like some session guitarist. And right. He's like, it's like Jack, there's no way Jack White's going to play me All You Learns From Tonight. He's like, I don't know. It's an interesting guy. So he calls Jack White. And like, Jack White's like, okay. And I was like, I cannot believe this is happening. So I was like, I'll go to Nashville. And all that. And so I just fly it. And then I think, well, while I'm in Nashville, Maybe I should go see Bobby Braddock, my old favorite. And I said, Bobby, do you think you would play it? And he's like, well, I won't play it, but I know this lovely, incredibly talented artist named Casey Bowles, and Casey will play it for us. So I was like, oh, I'll go and see Jack. He'll play it. Then I'll go and see Bobby, and Casey Bowles will play it, and I'll have them both talk about the song, and maybe I'll get an episode out of it. That's it. That's what it was. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. I had totally low expectations and I had sort of given up on it. And then I just sort of decided on a lark because I, who's going to turn down an opportunity to hang out with Jack White? And I love Nashville. So I was like, I don't know. It's like May. Nashville's lovely in May. It's two hours. It just was a kind of, the whole thing was a flyer. I had, you know, I was desperate for, it's, it's, there's a reason it's a 10th show. Because I didn't have a 10th show. Uh. See, and I was panicking. <laughs> so I go and the Jack White interview is like twice as good as I thought it was going to be. And the Casey Bowles thing was, which is the gift at the end of the show. Well, I mean, Jack White has this sort of, you know, Freudian slip or parapraxism. There were so many Freudian slips going on. <laughs> it was bananas. But it's a, li- it's a little one. So it's yeah. like you have to stop and call it out. And it, and it feels a little bit like, oh, okay, I, I can see yeah. that. And yeah. then, but it's almost like a setup for when she goes to sing her song, which is, I mean, that moment of audio. Is, it's like magic. I keep in mind, I had nothing to do with any of this. I didn't plan this, <laughs> anticipate it. I didn't. I just sat down with. I got super lucky that 
Jack White said yes. And not only did he say yes, both these people, Bobby Casey and Jack White, they all prepared. Like, they did their homework. They, like, thought about it. Super interesting. They took it really seriously, which I thought was so lovely. And I didn't, I just thought they would be like, oh, God, you know. But they were super into it. Everyone was into it. And I was, you know, I was the one who was, like, doing it on a lark. They were the ones who were super invested in it. But, um, and did you have already the, I mean, I guess the archival footage maybe is not as hard to find of Elvis, but yeah, that's just on YouTube. I mean, but that stuff is pretty haunting. Uh, yeah, to totally. listen to. I didn't know about any of this. When I, the, when I read the scholarly article, mm-hmm. I went and I listened to the YouTube clips of Elvis massacring this song. And so I knew I had something. I knew I had that audio. And then I went to see the shrink to get the Freudian, mm-hmm. proper Freudian perspective. And that was kind of, that's a little, that's a necessary bit, but you can't, that wasn't a show. You couldn't carry the show on an interview with a shrink. So I sort of had that and didn't know, I knew I needed more. I mean, revisionist history episodes, they're really weird. They're interesting. You assemble them like jigsaw puzzles and you get as little, they're all like, so it's like these one piece at a time and you, so you need like five or six pieces to make the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And you know when you, it's really obvious when you don't have enough pieces and you also know that you have to, for every 10 pieces you think you, for every 10 pieces you think you need, you need to try and get 20, right? So you're, you're always like over, it's really hard to do it efficiently. You, you kind of just have to go out in the world and gather lots of stuff and make lots of calls. And it's interesting. It's not like, whereas writing a book, it seems to be much more efficient. Like mm-hmm. I use way more of my, I don't have a lot of stuff left over when I write a book. Hmm. Whereas in podcasts, you've, huge amounts of stuff left over like all kinds of stuff never makes it in and and when you're when you're constructing those pieces do you feel like an, an episode follows similar beats that you want to hit or has a turn at a certain point that's sort of like okay now now we want to take this turn and we always take a turn at this point or that they're scattered no, there it's all everything's dictated lines. by the tape so mm-hmm. i remember there's a in episode two i did a whole thing about the statue civil rights statue in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. And the key thing is the interview with the sculptor. And I go to interview him in his little town in Alabama. He's a good talker, that guy. He's a great talker. It's a fantastic interview. Didn't know, I mean, again, that's total, no idea whether that was going to work. He turns it to be amazing. And there's a moment, I don't know when you remember, when he's describing all the ways in which he changed. It's a, he's the, this is the statue of the iconic civil rights photograph of the, police dog attacking the protester in one of the famous Birmingham marches in 63. And there's now a statue of that in Ingram Park in downtown Birmingham. And the statue was done by this sculptor. And it was the first sculpture he'd ever done. And he takes some liberties. <laughs> Just a few. In fact, more than a few. And he it wasn't like, he's not ashamed of the liberties. He's like, I took some liberties. And the moment where he describes taking liberties, it's just fantastic. It's just amazing. It's like, it was like, that's why I went to Birmingham, right? It's like just for that two minutes of tape when he's talking about this kind of incredible, which is just why it's, it's why you're a journalist, why you do what you do, just because for those moments, it's like you, the stuff you don't anticipate is always the best stuff. Yeah. Well, there's the, so there's another episode that I has really bothered me Mm-hmm. Um, that I've been wanting to talk about with you, which is the Brian Williams one. And it doesn't oh, yeah. bother me because of the conclusions about Brian Williams, which yeah. made total sense to me. But the premise of this episode 
is basically about memory and what yeah. we remember and mm-hmm. how we get things wrong. And there's this concept of flashbulb memory, which mm-hmm. maybe you can explain really quickly. Yeah. Flashbulb memory is a, a hugely important event, a, a dramatic event, uh, a brief dramatic event, which kind of uh, forces itself on your memory. And you talk to these researchers who study memory and you, and they find that oftentimes people misremember these yeah. events. Yeah. Um, and that's the sort of premise of the Brian Williams thing is that he's sort of pilloried for essentially injecting himself into a situation mm-hmm. that didn't happen to him. He was there. And then your conclusion is I'm butchering your conclusion possibly, but it's basically like he's innocent of that because we all misremember things and that's yeah. probably what happened. Yeah. But I, the, where I went from there was then it really, in some way, doesn't it call into question the sort of whole project of what we are doing in terms of going and asking people for their memories and then relaying those memories to people? Oh, absolutely. Did it make you think that? Totally. I always think that. I, you know, the first and most important lesson I learned at the Washington Post as a young reporter was that, you know, I was 23 or whatever I was, 22, started this paper i start reporting stories and i think that when i asked someone to tell me what happened my assumption is that was correct and then the corrections the next day corrections start to pile up and you start to get into more and more trouble with your editor because you're always getting things wrong you're like i didn't get that wrong he told me that and then then it dawns on you oh what people remember is more often than not incorrect there's nothing they're lying to you it's just that they don't Memory is so rife with error. That's why we employ reporters to do their job. And that's why you have to call more than one person. You got to call like three people and walk around the thing. And you got to get some, you know, documentary evidence from you to do your job. Otherwise, you're going to get in trouble. And you realize it's a you will lose your job in journalism until you understand and take to heart the frailty of human memory. Um, It took a long time for me to grasp that. But anyone, any lawyer or journalist knows this who's experienced just takes this for granted. The rest of the world, however, if you're not in a position where you're continually exposed to the frailty of memory, you fall into this default mode of thinking, oh, if so-and-so said they were there, they were there. Well, actually, probably weren't there. Right. Or they maybe they were there, but at a different time. Or, you know, it's just like, there's a moment in, um, one of my chapters in my book is about the, Sandusky case, there's the guy who sees the boy in the shower with Sandusky, and then he goes and he tells the people at Penn State, right? That's the, how that whole thing starts. It's a really, really interesting sidebar, semi-important, but not huge, about when, what date does he go tell Joe Paterno about what he saw? Mm-hmm. And uh, he's initially off by a year. At one point he says it was... He, you know, March of this year, and it turns out to be March of the previous year. That is not because he's lying or because it wasn't a traumatic memory or because anything. It's because we get dates mixed up. Right. We just do. Right. But then, so when you're, when you're telling a sort of more narrative story, like if you're trying to compile the facts of a situation, yeah. you obviously need to double check those facts. You can't rely on what people say. But yeah. I'm thinking of examples from even Vernon Jordan in one of the episodes <laughs> of Business History is describing walking down the street, this very dramatic episode when mm. he's just lost the final of appeal, someone who's about to be executed. It's a very, very dramatic and powerful thing to hear him describe it. Mm. And it's 
it becomes a potentially different thing if the whole time you're hearing him describe it, you're thinking that might have happened on a totally different day around a totally different case. I disagree with you because the emotional, what's powerful about that story is it's emotional content. Mm. It doesn't, so if he got the day off by two months and if he says he was wearing a brown suit and he was wearing a green suit and if he says he walked at night and it was actually during the day or if any of those things turn out to be different from his memory, it doesn't change it at all. What is important is that he was filled with shame at his inability to save the life of this wrongfully convicted man. I have no question in my mind that the emotional the emotional truth of that is precisely as he said it, right? That is, he carry, he'll carry that to his dying day. For 50, 60 years, he has felt the pain of that. That's, he didn't make that up. Just as the emotional truth of, was Brian Williams terrified out of his mind flying in that helicopter over the desert? Yes, he was. He was not lying about that. He was mistaken or mistaken. He was mistaken about which helicopter he was in and the sequence of events, yeah. But the emotional truth is, he didn't make that up. He's not like pretending. I was terrified, as you would be and as I would be. Vernon Jordan was ashamed, right? And it served as the, that was the psychological turning point in his life when he realized this is a battle I can't shrink from, right? Mm -hmm. I have to be engaged Mm -hmm. in this for the rest of my life. I can't walk away and do some other random thing. So that's what the story's about. And I think most of us read stories that way, that when people tell powerful stories to us, we're not, we don't get hung up on the details. And this is where lawyers, where the legal view of things and sometimes leads us, like I, I gave that example of, in that podcast about some of these sexual assault cases. We were, Harvey Weinstein was in the news when I was doing that. You know, if somebody says, you know, and then he chased me down the corridor and attacked me in the elevator, when was that? They ask in the deposition. And you, it was in Paris, March 15th, uh, 2009. And then they go, aha, it was not. You weren't in Paris in March 15th. You were, that does not in, you know, when I listen to that, I say the, you know, maybe she got the dates wrong. It doesn't invalidate the story. This, the, what's important about that is she's relating an emotional experience that she had, yeah. which that I believe in. And, but maybe it's two weeks later or two weeks before, and maybe it was in you know, Budapest and not Berlin, and maybe it was whatever, that we have to kind of, in our understanding of human stories, build into our understanding the notion that uh, memory is frail, and also that failures of memory are not failures of character. That was the big point of that yes, piece. Uh, yes. That's the crucial piece. It's just human to make these errors. It doesn't mean necessarily that you're trying to pull a wool over someone's eyes. Yes. I mean, I, I absolutely agree. The, where it led me to was a wonder, as you're saying, should that concept be laced into every story? I mean, it's difficult to to like provide a disclaimer to every story for your audience that may, might not be thinking of it that way. Yeah. They may be thinking of it as a fact-based, oh, I had three sources for this type of journalism as opposed to these are people who are counting their stories, which may they may be off or the details yeah. may be. But the, what I'm trying to convey is the power of what this person remembers, really, not yeah. the power of whatever right. facts yeah. happened many I do years think ago. All of this does, should inform storytelling and we should just be more honest about how what I'm telling you is a version of events. And I think, you know, 
there are lots of people who do this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's tons of autobiographies and biographies where people acknowledge the complexity or they talk about how there are conflicting accounts of something. Historians are the best at this. That's their job. And it's why reading history is so crucial to being, if you're going to be a storyteller, I think you have to be a student of history. You have to read history because the historians remind us how it's done, that they come in with a presumption that every fact needs to be checked and that there are seven different ways to tell a story, right? Depending on which side you want to take. And the kind of, I read some snarky tweet recently. I rarely read snarky (laughs) tweets, but somebody was saying, you know, every podcast now is all about how you thought you thought X about some crucial event. It's actually Y. Like, yes, you're right. Because that's, that's what, that's called, that's called life, right? That's, we're performing like historians and like anyone who tells stories, a very, very valuable service, which is we are reminding people that there are many ways to look at a problem, right? Or an issue or a memory. That's what it means to kind of ground someone in the real world and to give them a sense of what it means to be human. It's not a journalistic trope. It's a fundamental human activity. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. No, it's a delight as always. That is it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thank you to Malcolm Gladwell for coming on the show a third time. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern, Tyler McCloskey. As always, thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. Happy 2019. We will see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.